You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn. And in today's episode, we have a very interesting, exciting, and thoughtful interview with Aaron Wren. Really appreciated talking to Aaron. He always has some deep insights. He's very well read. And so today in the show, we're going to talk about things like what's going on with conservatism. We'll talk about Aaron's new podcast series, Why Republicans Hate Your Guts. We'll talk about Tim Keller, why he's been both popular and a lightning rod for criticism, especially on Twitter among evangelicals. And we'll talk about some of the most prominent masculinity books that have shaped Aaron's thinking. It's going to be a great show. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn. And today we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Aaron Wren. He is the creator of the Masculinist Newsletter. Aaron, you've also got the masculinist.com. Thanks for joining us on today's show. Thanks for having me. Well, Aaron, one of the things I want to ask you about today is the day we're recording January 6th. We have Georgia runoffs. We have stuff going on in D.C., but you've also started a new series on your podcast. And the first episode is Why the Republican Party Hates Your Guts. I was sucked in by the title alone, but I want to ask you, what is this about and, and what is the new series about? Well, I'm glad that my clickbait worked on you. Uh, <laughs> it that did. Was, that, was my hope. that was my hope. And so I'm doing a sort of like a, a series that I did uh, in the fall uh, on what I called Urban World, Urban Church, kind of taking a look at, you know, some, some of how the urban church world functions. I wanted to do something similar for conservatism and the Republican Party evangelical Christians have been the single most loyal voting block of the Republican Party, sometimes even to the chagrin of their leaders. Right. And yet, the Republican Party has done very little to advance the policy preferences of evangelical Christians, uh, who are very much second-class citizens uh, in the evangelical world, which is something I'll be going into a, in a future issue. Right. And not only that, the median Republican voter is basically a kind of non-college educated uh, white person uh, who, you know, is in the middle class or the lower middle class working class. And what, you know, what does the Republican Party actually do for them? The answer is, you know, not much. Right. And so I wanted to We'll start laying out a little bit about conservatism and the Republican Party, how it came into being, where evangelicals fit into this, so that people can start thinking or rethinking about how they should engage politically. I don't tell people how to vote, um, but I want to give people information they can use to help formulate their vote. And again, one reason I wanted to wait until after the elections is because I didn't want people to accuse me of saying, oh, you're just <laughs> trying to get them to vote for Biden, right? Yeah, right. Which was not the case at all. Um, and, you know, as I said, I actually worked for, you know, a conservatism Inc. institution for five years. Right. Uh, so I, you know, I know I'm not, uh, 
you know, I'm not someone from the left or comes from a left-wing background, but I do think this re- reflexive support for the Republican Party that kind of came out of the baby boomer generation, really, um, is something that needs to be rethought. Um, not necessarily that you would vote, but sorry, pull the vote for the, the lever for the Democrats, but that you know, evangelicals will start rewriting their relationships with some of these political entities. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I, I think like you mentioned in the show, I made it about halfway through, but, um, you know, a lot of people, especially if you're a Christian, you're born into sort of rural conservatism. That is sort of the reflexive thing you do is, you know, you vote Republican, but you kind of make the case that Republicans aren't always uh, in it for our best interests as Christians. And I want to ask you, especially if you look back at the last year, there's been this really weird dynamic, I think, between evangelical leaders. Um, I think of like John Piper. He comes out right before the election, says, I don't know who I'm voting for. Maybe nobody. Maybe you should vote for nobody. Um, we see a lot of this. And in, in, at least from my perspective, it seems like there's an angst um, in evangelicalism and then in relation to the political parties. I'm curious what you've seen over the course of the year? Well, Donald Trump really exposed a lot of fractures Hmm. in various uh, political and religious movements. So, you know, in 2016, when he ran, you know, there was this group of people, the never Trumpers. Right. And, and, you know, the overwhelming majority of Republicans voted for him. But there was this group called the never Trumpers who basically were so turned off, many of them left the Republican Party. I would submit that this sort of fissure between the never-Trumpers and the mainstream of the Republican Party of conservative movement was there all along. Trump merely exposed the fact that there was this fissure. And by the way, I don't think it's an accident that the people who were never-Trumpers are people who were disproportionately among the biggest advocates of the Iraq war, including, say, David French, who in 2019, we're not talking about 2004 here, we're talking about 2019, wrote an article defending the Iraq war still today. So there are these fissures that existed that maybe we didn't know existed, but now we're seeing them. And the same thing happened within this, this kind of evangelical world, which I think had always a little bit been cobbled together right. out of different people from different backgrounds and different tribes. And it was sort of all, you know, put together under the banner of evangelicalism. Now we're seeing that there are these big divisions. And one of the, definitely the big divisions is between the, um, call it the elite and the base, right? similar to the Republican Party, and that you have a lot of these, um, what they call big Eva types, many of whom are in these heavily blue uh, cities. They're very much embedded in an upper middle class social milieu. They share many of the values of that. Um, they have, you know, kind of been horrified at, at, at this sort of like, you know, kind of we'll call it lowbrow support <laughs> right. for Donald Trump, who, um, you know, I criticized Donald Trump in that podcast and I already got some flack for it, um, which, you know, that's fair. I can take it. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, I think it's, I do think we have to acknowledge, right. You know, Donald Trump's not a great guy. Okay. Right. Let's just be, let's just be clear, but this caused all the, all these fish. And so what you're sort of seeing is, uh, you know, what some people are calling it's, it's, it's a more Anabaptist approach to politics. 
right. rather than sort of prudentially engaging in politics in the real world, we sort of have this moral withdrawal. And it's almost like we don't want to taint ourselves too much by being involved in politics. You know, and I think the I think that Piper thing kind of gets to it. Now, of course, they're never consistent in this because they want to politically engage on social justice issues. <laughs> Another area is where they want right. to very forthright, forcefully engage. But this has been one of the trends, and uh, I really saw it this year. You know, um, I think it has something to do with the fact that it was an election year in 2020, and that essentially you had this group of essentially never Trump evangelicals who had been very, very negative towards Trump, certainly in 2016 and in the wake of 2016, that I would say during the 2020 election all seem to have collectively changed track right. and no longer explicitly bashing Trump, but using this sort of third way of, oh my goodness, um, you know, both of these people are morally compromised. Who can we vote for? I don't know. But, you know, because evangelical voters were so heavily Republican, the net result of that was, again, to, in a more subtle way, undermine support for Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. Maybe a lot of those people didn't vote for him. Um, I'm curious, Aaron, as you look at the landscape, I know there's a lot going on. It seems like day by day stuff is changing. Um, As I said, we're still waiting on final, final results on election, Georgia runoff, all that stuff. Um, As you look at the next year, particularly... Uh, in this conversation with evangelicals, uh, Republican Party, um, and also some of the the evangelicals that have, you know, basically thrown full support behind the Democrats. I'm just curious how you see things playing out in the next year. What do you think changes? You know, it's really hard to say, to be quite honest. And one of the things I think we fall into a trap in doing is creating an overdetermined view of the future. Hmm. Crazy things happen. You know, at the beginning of 2020, no one would have predicted what was going to happen with this pandemic and lockdowns and and all of that. I think on January 20th, 2015, nobody in the country, not even Donald Trump, would have believed Donald Trump was going to be inaugurated for president just two years later. Right. So I take this sort of Nassim Taleb view that there are things out there that we don't even know about that can, that can hit and do it. So I don't want to invest too much in an overdetermined future, but let's just, let's assume the Democrats get control of the Senate. It would just, would just have to see, obviously they've got their own divisions and um, Biden appears to be appointing essentially Obama admin kind of retreads yeah. and old school people, um, into these positions, which would suggest that he's going to govern fairly moderately, I think, as a, as a Democrat. Um, I think there will be a lot of pressure on the left. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. There's definitely people who say, uh, you know, they need to eliminate the filibuster, pack the court, um, you know, make D.C. a state, make Puerto Rico a state, essentially just rewrite the Constitution, constitutional settlement such that the Republicans can never win again. Right. And, you know, they may they may do that. You know, they may do that. But then again, you think a lot of times you think that you can do something and predict the course of events that's going to follow. Sometimes things unleash forces 
that you can't control or you don't know how they're going to play out. So even if the, the Democrats did that, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would play out the way that um, they think it's going to. So I think it's it's an, usually the case that right after an election, if your side loses, right, you're kind of like, you know, woe is us. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you're going to feel down. It's like, so that's a natural reaction. But I don't want to put, I don't want to put uh, to, to, to get too much of a downer, right? I've, I've said, even before the election, I said, look, we have to keep our morale up. We have to recognize that God is sovereign. And no matter who thinks that they control the levers of power, ultimately, uh, he's going to control how, how, what things come to pass. That doesn't mean it's going to be necessarily what we want. It doesn't mean that all evil is going to be eliminated in the now. But things can happen from unexpected quarters that nevertheless deliver like victories we would have never thought possible. I'll just give you one example. You know, Politico wrote this article a while back, maybe within the last year, about how the, the GO, how the GOP gave up on porn. Right. And basically about here's how Republican Party just stopped trying to do anything about porn. And you'll notice that even the evangelical elite really only talk about porn today in terms of one of two things. Either it's a personal moral failure of men who watch it, or they'll talk about sex trafficking, human right. trafficking. But they don't really talk about, for all this talk about, for example, structural racism, you know, nobody would talk about like the systemic social ills of pornography in the way that they used to say 20 years ago. Well, about three weeks ago, maybe, Nicholas Kristof, the liberal columnist of the New York Times, wrote a big piece that was on the front page of the Sunday Review section talking about Pornhub and how Pornhub was full of underage porn. It was full of rape porn. It was full of revenge porn. And he had profiles of people who'd been victimized in this manner. And within a week, Pornhub had deleted like half their videos. Oh, wow. Visa, MasterCard, Discover have cut them off. Pornhub has even, they're instituting new requirements that prohibit people from downloading videos offline. They're making you be a verified um, user in order to upload videos. They're, do, they're instituting all these new things. Now, does that put porn out of business? No. But basically, the biggest purveyor of porn on the internet just got a punch in the face. Right. Not from, not from the church, not from the Republican Party, from a liberal New York Times columnist. And I actually <laughs> right. tweeted this. I said, you know, the, the liberal Democrat pro-pornography columnist for the New York Times, Nick Kristoff, just did more to interrupt the flow of porn on the internet than every single Republican in the whole country combined in the last 25 years. Isn't that amazing? Which is true. And he actually saw that and, he said, and kind of laughed at it. He said, you made me smile there. <laughs> but that goes to show you that like, you know, Pornhub's riding high. These Republicans can't do anything to me. And then wham, it came from someplace he didn't even see. So there's possibilities yeah. out there um, that, that we don't see. And and so it's uh, what was that? Was it Jonathan who, before he went into battle against the Philistines, said, "God is not constrained to save by many or by few." Right. We see the same thing with Gideon, and so I don't think we need to get into a uh, you know kind of a negative headspace, even when things in the world don't appear to be going the way that we want. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I think, Aaron, it also gets to another interesting issue. Um, I think you talked about it uh, in one of your podcast issues. I know you and I have talked about it before as well. Uh, But this goes to James Davison Hunter's book, To Change the World, and really to get into the discussion about like, where does cultural change happen? Um, You know, who controls the the means of cultural production and and these sorts of questions. So the first thing I want to ask you is is about that book. Uh, Why have you kind of pointed to it? You said it's a playbook in many ways for uh, evangelical leaders even. But, But what is it about that book that is so important? Well, Hunter basically argues that culture changes from the top down. It right. does not change from the bottom up. And that culture is, is produced by networks of elite at the pinnacles, at the center uh, of, of the cultural production regime. So it doesn't matter if the Left Behind book sold 60 million copies, <laughs> right? It matters if Nicholas Kristof writes that one article in the right. New York Times. Right. So not all content is equal. Not all people are equal. Culture typically changes in Hunter's view because of people who are in the elite areas. They're in the elite networks, but they're not at the inner circle. They're slightly outside of the inter- inner circle. And they want to be in the inner circle. And that's the the group of people that push change forward. So in his book, he's got one chapter that's important to read. It's like 11 theses on cultural change that I think really kind of lays it out. And I think his, his model is more applicable to the kind of mass media age that we live in uh, than it is to, um, other things, but I, I still I still think that it's valuable to consider. I don't think it's the total story, but what he was talking about was something that was very important. This this idea that we're going to change culture through a collection of essentially grassroots dissident blogs and podcasts that's most likely not going to happen unless some faction within the cultural elite wants to pick up and signal boost that. Right. I think one thing that you will, you will find is that there's very little that's really truly organic today. You know, when you see somebody who's gotten huge and you're like, man, what did I do wrong? Right. I don't have that many listeners on my podcast. Well, right. they probably had some external help. Somebody you know, platformed them or. Somebody platform them something. And one of the examples that James Davison Hunter um, uh, uh, had was a Billy Graham. And like everybody thinks Billy Graham was this great evangelist that was selling off these stadiums. But his claim is it's indisputable that the central action that launched the career of Billy Graham was when the newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst told his newspaper people, Puff Graham. That was the claim. Right. I want you guys to puff this guy up. He's pretty cool. I want you to, to signal boost him. And, and so he, you know, so it was outside newspaper owners, influential media people who saw Billy Graham and built him up. Billy Graham also built all sorts of alliances within elite kind of political, media, cultural, and financial circles. 
For example, he maintained his church membership at the First Baptist Church of Dallas, even though he didn't normally attend there. Right. One reason being a bunch of super wealthy Texas oil men were there. And everybody who was big in evangelicalism had oil money behind them. Right. And it's even true today. Like, you know, I'm not going to tell you anything, but let me just say some of these people that names, you know, I guarantee you they got oil money coming into their coffers. Right. And, and so it's like, if you don't have that sort of alliances with people in the inner circle or some kind of direct membership in inner circle yourself, you're going to find it very hard to change culture. And when they don't like what you're saying, it's very easy for them to suppress you. One example, you probably remember this internet character named Milo Yiannopoulos. <laughs> of Milo, course. back in 2016, Milo had this incredible following huge. among college students. Huge. Well, what did they do? They squashed Milo like a bug. Right. And so essentially, they can squash anybody like a bug right. that you want, that they want. And so you start looking at one by one, they sort of pick some of these people off if you become too big of a threat to the system. So if you are essentially allied to the elite, you know, that has, brings enormous benefits to you. If you are not allied to the elite, you know, when I say elite in the sense of, uh, you know, the elite cultural production entities, the universities, Right. The newspapers, um, certain NGOs, government agencies, foundations, uh, et cetera, or money, sources of money, you're going to really find it very difficult to effect change. And so there, there's very little, it's very seldom the case that there's a true grassroots revolution uh, out there. I mean, so I, I think the reality is if we want change change has to come through some internal division in the elite or through the emergence of new forms of economic elites. Right. That can, that can, that can create a new, whenever there's a change in the economy, it often produces a change in the elite. You know, for example, when we went from a predominantly agricultural based economy in Europe uh, that was very dominated by the landed aristocracy, we moved into a more trade based economy around cities and merchants created this sort of bourgeois elite, it undermined the feudal order. Right. Because the, 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 the economic base changed. And so you know, it could be a new economic base. There, there are ways that things change. Uh, but I think that uh, you know, we need to be a little bit savvy about how cultural change happens. And Hunter's book, um, I think, is, is pretty good. It's, it's, it's good to see what, happen, see what happened. And by the way, again, this was the playbook that the, uh, the, the, the so-called big elites took. That's why they went out and cultivated relationships, not with Christianity Today magazine or something like that, but it's why they cultivated relationships with the New York Times, the Washington Post, and these elite secular outlets. Right. And that gave them kind of entree into that cultural world. It's probably also why groups like the Gospel Coalition were created in the first place. The Gospel Coalition is essentially a network of elites. And so institutions that create net networks of elites 
it's a subaltern elite, obviously, because Christianity is not part of the, the, the true elite. But certainly within that kind of reformed evangelical world, these entities like the Gospel Coalition created, you know, elite networks that tremendously reinforced and solidified the power of those people that they would not have without this sort of institutional instantiation of their um, of of their networks. Right. Do you, Aaron, do you see this continuing to be sort of that playbook being run um, in, in the future moving forward? Well, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, I don't see that the, um, you know, I think a lot of the evangelical elite types are now essentially baby boomer, reti- retirement age baby boomers. Right. You know, one, one of the things that we see in America is that baby boomers really achieved very high levels of leadership at pretty comparatively early ages. And they've been holding on to it ever since. Right. I mean, Joe Biden is, isn't even older than a boomer. And so I think the real, the real sweet spot generation is the people from, you know, I use 1942, but you could probably say 1940 to like 1960, uh, 1955 or 1954, that early cohort of baby boomers, that first generation of baby boomers, people like Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump, who were all born in 1946. And I think John Piper, by the way, was born in 1946. Yeah, Dobson's got to be somewhere in that realm too, yeah, I would think. a lot think. of them are in that range. Yeah. You know, Hillary Clinton was born in uh, 1947. I think Biden was born in 42. Newt Gingrich was born in 42. You know, that group of people has been, they've had power and they've been running the show for a very long time. And since they were young and were maybe the, maybe the first generation in a while that had been labeled as this, you know, it is this, it was the generation gap. It's this new youth boomer generation right that is this you know huge group of people that society is going to have to adapt to they've sort of had the world revolve around them their whole lives right from when they were kids right all the way through to today and so the the reality is i don't see too many people who are at retirement age doing a lot to change the fundamental nature of their game right i don't see that it's really part of kind of the baby boomer mindset uh, to do that. And, you know, we're all sort of a little bit affected by our generational experience. I'm definitely generation X in the way I see the world. Um, right. And that's got power that generation X people like me were extremely good at social criticism at this kind of detached. We, we weren't really running things. We just got to sit back and critique and watch. Right. But we're not nearly as good at building institutions, for example. Right. So I think we have to recognize that, um, you know, every generation has strengths and weaknesses. But when people get to be sort of retirement age, you know, I, I don't see that there's going to be a, a huge amount of change. Right. Right. Probably not. Probably not. Well, it's interesting, too. Um, you had a show on Tim Keller. Uh, I thought you did a good job and a very fair piece, I think, um, explaining sort of what's going on with this phenomenon. And I bring that up because this is kind of an example of sort of the boomer generation. Um, of course, Keller, I think, writes the foreword to James Davis and Hunter's book. It's just interesting, as you mentioned in that show, kind of what's happened with Keller. Um, very prominent in the 90s, early 2000s, 
like a lot of these guys who have been prominent, starting to draw a lot of heat from evangelicals. Um, and you, again, you could throw some other names in here. I think even John Piper, um, sort of his, I guess his name, his ministry has, has been tarnished a little bit, at least in the mind of a lot of people. So I want to ask you just why you think that is, what's going on with the Tim Keller phenomenon. It's almost been a popular thing even to, to bash Keller, I think, especially on Twitter that I've seen. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, well, I certainly think uh, Keller and, and Piper are two very different guys in terms yeah. of where they, they come from. And again, they were very involved, though, in creating the Gospel Coalition together. And I think the fact that they've sort of allied with each other shows their kind of sophistication. Um, they're two people that I don't think I would necessarily expect to have been bosom buddies, but they sort of recognized in that sort of group, that broader group, hey, we actually do have a lot in common if we create these networks uh, to, to, to basically uh, boost our profiles here, right. which was very savvy of them to do. With, with Keller, what I basically say is, you know, uh, this, I don't want to give us a hyper-condensed explanation here because I don't have time to go in, into the whole thing. We don't sure. spend an hour on just on this. <laughs> sure. Basically, I think the times have changed. Yeah. And, you know, in the Reagan era, there was sort of this Jerry Falwell, more of a majority, Pat Robertson, Christian Coalition, all that. That was very, you know, politically driven religious right. You know, when we really entered into the 90s and the 2000s, we entered this less, um, uh, less religious right age and more of this culturally pluralistic age that I call the, the neutral world. It's sort of the age of cultural engagement. Right. Where you know, being a Christian wasn't necessarily seen as a positive or a negative. It was sort of like a personal affectation that you might have. And so I think Keller in that environment really was the right man at the right place at the right time to speak into uh, a lot of these different secular communities to articulate Christianity in a way that resonated with them uh, uh, and not like, say, um, Pat Robertson would have articulated it. Right. Which would not have resonated with him. Although, by the way, Pat Robertson went to seminary in New York City. <laughs> he went oh, to New York Theological Seminary. Interesting. Um, and, and so uh, I think he was really able to do that in the 90s. Um, supposedly, many hundreds of people uh, became Christians uh, at, at Redeemer in that, in that era. And it really was kind of a, a magical moment. Right. And he, you know, getting into the 2000s, you know, 2000s were like 2000. It was really sort of like around 2006, 2007 that he started to become much more famous. He started getting more, more glowing profiles. He did that. Uh, his book, The Reason for God, became a bestseller. Uh, by the way, which was on a secular, a big name secular publishing label. He didn't go with a Christian publisher, which I think shows his cultural savvy. Yeah. And, you know, he did that 2010 Lausanne talk. And he, he, you know, he really became sort of famous in that kind of 2007 time frame. I mean, he was not a famous pastor, I think, in the 1990s. And so he sort of, he, he sort of had this run where he was considered, and I use the analogy to Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, who in the early 2000s, late 90s, was considered the prophet of globalization. Right. Know, the world is flat. But then, you know, he kind of just, he kind of became passe. Right now, Thomas Friedman is a joke. 
And so Keller, Keller had this age when he was really articulating this cultural engagement world. He was very confidently engaging with the culture. People are getting saved. You know, he's um, writing all these books that secular people are devouring. He's giving big speeches. And he's like the man of the moment. And then kind of two things happen. One is his, his message sort of gets distilled out there. Like everybody kind of knows the city story now. Right. Like cities are important. You don't need, you know, it's sort of like everybody knows about globalization now. And then secondly, the world kind of changed, right? He could sort of tap dance around issues like abortion that he just said, well, we'll downplay that and we'll focus on these other issues over here. Our goal is to bring people to Christ, et cetera. Now the, the number of issues that you have to tap dance around is so large, it's harder and harder to do that. And, and so I, I think really we've, we've entered this era, which is now more explicitly hostile to Christianity and especially to the Christian moral order, which is right. seen as undermining the, the, the public good and the new kind of public moral order. And Keller is just not as effective in that environment. And, you know, it, again, at his age, you know, I don't want to say, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but it's just a lot harder to reinvent yourself at that, that era. And I think there is a frustration with people that Keller has been kind of like Teflon. Right. That unlike all these other people, he has sort of been the darling of the New York Times. And I mean, you can even see this. He was in the secular media. And then all of a sudden, especially when we moved to digital and things like the Washington Post would run a lot of digital only right. op-eds, lots of Christians started getting in the, in the New York Times and then the Washington Post. And I noticed one of his big op-eds, where did it go? The New Yorker. He went to a platform that was like, I'll get a little more exclusive where these other guys don't really have access to the New Yorker. <laughs> right. So that's, that's sort of the playbook. But I think he's, he's really, um, I think this idea that like he is the most elite people, he's the most beloved of secular society. He's sort of been Teflon and that the criticisms that have been lobbed of him have bounced off of him. And so I think a lot of people are very frustrated with him um, in that regard. And I, I suspect he's frustrated. He's like, why am I tweeting the exact same thing? And I'm getting a different result. Yeah. And, and now, it's most, now it's not working all of a sudden. Now all of a sudden it's like, it's like the old scripts don't work. You know, it's like in the eighties right. when I was in high school, it's like, go to college. You have to get that college degree and go get a job at a company and you'll do great. Right. Well, that basically worked in the eighties. Now it still works for a lot of people. For a lot of other people, they're like, oh no, I have 50, 60, $80,000 in college debt. I'm not having this great high paying job. <laughs> right. The plot makes more money than me and I went to college. What's happening? Right. So it's sort of like, there's like a lot of the scripts that, that used to be like, you follow the script and sometimes it's like the, the magic doesn't work anymore. Right. Right. And Trump was sort of a, you know, a harbinger of that from the, from the politics. It's like the old rules about just who's the most authentically Reaganite, you know, would be the true conservative who would appeal to the base. It just didn't work. Right. Right. And so I, I do think, I do think that the times have changed. And, and so Keller's Keller is very ineffective today in a sense, um, in a way that he wasn't before. I, 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 I very much doubt that there are tons of like, 
skeptics who are being convinced by him today or for <laughs> right. in the 90s you know right he's he's still got his fanboys just like a lot of corporate ceos still like to hang out with thomas friedman right right he's got an army of online fanboys which i think is another reason that people have taken a little bit of a negativity to him he's got this army of fanboys who will relentlessly attack you if you you know if you um criticize keller and so I, so I think he's less effective. I think he's much more ineffective in sort of the, I call it the public intellectual role. Yeah. Where I think he's probably still very effective is, you know, with the church planning and, and pastoral coaching that he does with Redeemer City to City. And that's really, I think, been his big focus. Right. And, and so I think he's probably pretty effective there. We don't hear a lot about it. But the public intellectual side, it, it's like, the, you know, People don't want to hear the oldies anymore. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, disc- disco is no longer hot. Kind of yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, Michael Foster and I were even talking about this recently. You know, he's planning a church, and Michael was saying, you know, I went back, and I, I've been reading all of Keller's stuff on church planning, and a lot of it is just phenomenal. Um, that stuff really still works today, whereas, as you said, some of the social intellectual commentary is um, probably, I would say, what draws the most ire, yeah. uh, especially social media, Twitter. My question for you, Aaron, also is in, in, you know, in that realm of, of guys who were once effective, uh, you know, Keller maybe being one of them. And then today it's, it's just not resonating on the flip side of that. Who do you see leader wise that's out there that you say, man, this guy gets it. Um, he's resonating people with people, his message is clicking. Um, and you kind of see people in that sort of rising star category. Who, who do you see that fits that bill? Well, it's a, you know, I, I don't know that there's any one person I would pick out. Obviously, there are lots of people who are still doing phenomenally well. Right. right? So um, up until his recent fall, Carl Lentz at Hillsong. Yeah. Right. Was doing, I mean, Hillsong. He's got the Bieber. I mean. Yeah. Bieber is now apparently at Churchill, but there's, there's this group of like pastors to the celebrities in these big cities. And I can tell you. Like I went to Hillsong when I was in New York. I mean, I didn't regularly attend there, but I went to it probably 10 times, checked it out. I did a lot of checking it out. Sure. And, you know, every seat is packed. Sometimes there's lines to get in. It's probably the biggest church in Manhattan, or it was. Um, You know, the Hillsong guys were just killing it. Now, again, that's not my cup of tea, you know, necessarily. It's like a rock star environment. So, um, but, but in terms of somebody who's sort of in that reformed, kind of conservative reformed world i'm not necessarily seeing this like meteor uh people going up i do think that uh i do think that kevin DeYoung um is a guy who's you know he's he's still relatively young uh you know no pun no pun intended here <laughs> uh you know and he says and writes things that are out of sync with the zeitgeist So he just did, he just did a piece today, I think, on how to talk about race, where he says things like, you know, I'm not a big fan of CRT and here's, you know, these different things. And again, you know, whether you agree with the piece or not, the fact that he's saying things that are like, he's he's a little bit to the beat of a different drummer. Yeah. On talking about, oh, you should have lots of kids. And he's taking a beating, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he's a guy that I think is sort of a bigger name guy um, who's getting, who's been getting bigger and who's been you know, putting himself out there more. I think there are probably a number of people who are 
uh, names that are not yet household names um, who could potentially be be huge. Um, you know, I'm not going to name either the the man or the church uh, because you know, I, I for because I, I I like to really keep the places I've attended church out of this because I you know I don't want them to get <laughs> caught in my crossfire sort of thing. But I think right. my, like my old pastor of my church in New York, I mean, could be the next Tim Keller very easily. Right. Um, nobody knows who he is basically yet. And, but he's got, you know, all the skills, all the connections, et cetera. It's not Justin Bieber. Guy whenever he wants. Yeah. He doesn't have Justin Bieber, but then, you know, <laughs> but you know, he's got, he's got some other people. Right. Um, but, but I still think there's probably a number of people like that. Right. Um, who are just basically regular church pastors today who, if they so desired, could become bigger name book authors, speakers, et cetera. And again, maybe a lot of these people don't, right? Yeah. Maybe a lot of these people don't. Um, maybe they don't want to do that. But I think there are probably, you know, it's, it's, there are probably people out there we don't know about yet. Um, but again, I think the, the issue is going to be who is going to be able to make the alliances with power, in essence, that allows them to rise up to a position of prominence. Right. And who is someone who's speaking a message that would resonate with me or resonate with you. I think that's a, that's a more interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> there may be many people who have the talents and who have the message, but they may not get the platform of, or the signal boost. Yeah. Having some sort of connection. Well, it's interesting too, Aaron, because similar things have happened in the manosphere and the topic of masculinity. Obviously, that's something that you've been writing and speaking about for some time. Um, I think the Masculinist Newsletter, right, is 2016. Is that when you started it? I think so, yeah. Okay. So, you know, you've tackled issues, right? You've got white knighting. We've got complementarianism. You talked about that, the nice guy syndrome. I'm curious from your perspective, uh, it seems like in that time frame from 2016 to now, a lot has changed. Kind of where have you seen the change and, and what do you see today as the prominent issues in masculinity? Well, I think a lot of the issues are still the same. Um, I, you know, I just think there's new generations of people who need to discover things in different ways. Right. Certainly the old manosphere, as it was known, um, doesn't really exist anymore. Now, the people who are in kind of in what they would call the manosphere uh, would say that it still exists, but it's really very different than it was back in the day. Most of the big name people from, say, the 2013 to 2015 time frame that was the golden age of the manosphere, right? they've either, they've disappeared. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest guy who was the biggest Christian writer in that place was a guy named Dalrock. Yeah, um, that's a pseudonym. Um, I think Dal Rock is a place near Dallas, Texas, and he's he was from Dallas, but he he was definitely the international man of mystery. Um, right. And then just went away. And they just 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 went poof. You know, he's gone. Uh, Chateau Hartiste, the guy who went by the Royce, this that guy's gone. Right. Um, you know, a lot of them are gone. Uh, yeah, Rouge is Rouge not. Rouge Day converted to Christianity. Right. Um, you know, so some of these guys converted to Christianity and, and left their, their ways behind. The, the, the main guy from that era who's still going strong and really hasn't changed is, is this guy who goes by the name of Rolo Tomasi. Yeah. Although I think Rolo now does mostly video streaming. It is, yeah. yeah and, and the other thing you, would, you see that Rolo, one of the things he adjusted to the times 
one of the things about the manosphere that limited its reach was most of the people in the manosphere were anonymous. Yeah. You didn't know who they were. And I think that that really, um, for a guy like Dalrock, like nobody was ever going to engage with Dalrock because he just wouldn't, he wouldn't put himself out there. And it just gives people the easy out to not engage with you. And, uh, you know, I, I studied some of these people and what they did. And one of the reasons I decided to actually put my name out there, or as I say, people are, people are only going to engage with you if you're like putting your name out there. And right. Rolo, Rolo saw this and Rolo now does videos. You, you actually can see who Rolo is. Right. He's not behind. He was another guy who was in the shadows right. for a very long time. The guy who blew up after he put his name and face on what he was doing was Mike Cernovich. Right. You know, Mike had been a, uh, you know, he'd been a law blogger and he sort of reinvented himself as Mike from Danger and Play, which was this Manosphere blog. And then he slowly kind of kind of came out as, as who he really was. Mike Cernovich and put his face out there and his family and all that. And he became huge. Right. If he were still trying to be, you know, anonymous Mike from danger and play, he would have been small. And I think guys like Rolo saw that and, uh, and said, Hey, I better put my face out there. It'll, it'll, it'll grow my audience. What do you well, think that little... is about anonymity, Aaron, that, that turns people off? Cause we've had these discussions on Twitter a lot, right? Like, there's all sorts of guys on there. I'm like, you know, they've all, all got pseudonyms of some sort, but, but you're right yeah. about that. I'm just curious why. Yeah. Well, one anonymity just gives people a built-in ready excuse to dismiss you. Now I yeah. want to stress, I absolutely support people staying anonymous. Right. I don't want to shame or say, I'm telling you, you should be public. Most people probably should stay anonymous <laughs> right. because there can be big repercussions to saying, a lot of things. Sure. But some people need to be, some people need to have their face on it. I do think that if you, if you are anonymous, um, you end up, uh, you know, people just easily write you off and kind of fringe anonymous online subcultures tend to become very quirky, very weird. They tend towards kind of extreme thinking and, you know, I think when you're when you're public, when you have your name in your face and you're embedded in a real community of real people, like we're talking on the phone and right. it's not just kind of all these online suits and that it can kind of keeps you keeps you more real, more grounded. Right. Um, you know, and, uh, and and so I think that's part of uh, part of it. But certainly people certainly it's the number one reason, easiest reason for, like, say, one of these uh, big name pastors, if you know, Dalrock would criticize them. Why would they bother to engage with, with Dalrock? Yeah. Right? He's it, anonymous. And, and so I, I intentionally structured a lot of, of what I did based on what I saw worked and, and I thought it did not work in guys like Dalrock. Yeah. It, it's interesting too. I think um, it, it's nice for guys to be able to see faces and names um, and maybe it lends some authenticity to the message as well. I want to ask you, Aaron, one of the things that you've written about in the newsletter quite a bit, um, I'm sure I would guess, have taken flack for, um, is your writing about Rod Dreher. He's sort of a lightning rod, I think, in conservatism. You love him, hate him. Um, but one of the things I was encouraged by listening to or reading, rather, the newsletter 
and then listening to you talk about live not by lies, um, I was actually impressed. Rod has a lot of helpful things to say. So I want to ask you about that first with the Benedict option. Do you think that book today still has play? Is it important for people to read? And if so, why? I do think it's a good book to read. As I said, when I first wrote about it, when I laid out this, this idea of the negative world, of the fact that we've entered a world where it's no longer like the religious right era of the 80s, it's no longer like the cultural engagement world that Tim Keller excelled at, but we're in this new world. Right. Kind of since 2014, we're in this new world. It's a more hostile world. And it's something that the mainstream uh, evangelical establishment has really not responded to. They have not come up with a, an effective strategy or even attempted to come up with an effective strategy to thrive in this era. And I said the Benedict option was the first serious effort to think about how should we live in this new world. And the first of anything is obviously going to be a bit awkward, right? It's not going to have all the answers, but it sort of puts some of the right questions out there. And uh, so I definitely think it's something uh, to write about. You know, Rod obviously has never been a Protestant to the best of my knowledge. He really came to faith as a Catholic and then moved into the Eastern Orthodox Church. Right. So he comes at things from a little bit of a different angle. I don't know that he uh, appreciated the extent to which naming it the Benedict Option uh, would be a turnoff to a lot of uh, certain class of Protestants who don't, you know, kind of have a kryptonite reaction to monasticism. Right. Um, it's a, on the one hand, it was a great name. Like, you know, he's got this great catchy name, the Benedict Option. Everybody knows it. Everybody says it. But there's certain embedded things in the Benedict Option, just that name that I think kind of Protestants didn't go for. So um, I think there's things don't resonate with people, but I certainly think even if he doesn't have all the right answers, he certainly is asking some of the right questions. Right. Uh, some of the right questions. And so definitely he's a guy that like, you know, you kind of, again, he has this love, I mean, people have this love hate relationship with him. Um, and, uh, but he's, you know, he's a guy that's, uh, he's out there saying what he wants. So, you know, I always look for the good in people. Um, you know, what can I learn from this person, that person? This is where I, you know, I get really kind of troubled by the, the sycophancy towards Keller. Keller's, Keller's, and I used to be a Keller fanboy myself. So I, I now I get it. And now I, I changed from saying I was a fanboy to just being a fan because <laughs> right. you don't want to be the fanboy. These people who just worship the ground Tim Keller walks on, I mean, they're not yeah. giving a realistic appraisal of the man, recognizing his strengths, but also maybe his weaknesses or some of his flaws. Right. When you can't admit any flaw in someone, then, you know, as Keller himself might put it, maybe you've made them into an idol. Right. But I do think, you know, I do think this idea, even people maybe you disagree with on a lot of other things, you don't want to just say, oh, that person's terrible or this, they're that. Say, hey, maybe they actually have some very good points. <laughs> right. You know, maybe they have some very good points. Um, I, you know, I'm sure you would say, look, a lot of times people criticize us. Maybe you get some feedback on a podcast. You think, man, that's unfair criticism. But you can show in this, hey, maybe they had a point on X, Y, or Z. Right. And, and uh, you can learn from the people who criticize you, even if you think 90% of their criticism is off base. Start asking, well, why did they come up? Why did they think this way? What was that reaction? Right. And you can make yourself better if you, don't, if you don't learn from the critics. So I think believing that you have to, you know, I, I agree totally with Dreer. 
in order to extract value from him, uh, I think is a mistake. You know, we can, we can, even if you disagree with him on a lot of things, there's still things to learn from him. Uh, and he's, he's the main guy out there talking about right. these other things. Yeah. an actual strategy. It, it was interesting because I had read your newsletter about it, uh, the Benedict option. Um, and it's, it's funny because in a lot of conservative circles, like the Benedict option was thrown out like, oh, those are the retreatists. Those are the people that just want to bow out of the cultural fight. I'm like, you know, I read your newsletter. I'm like, okay, I'm going to actually read this book before I criticize it. Uh, and then I read it and I was like, that's not really what Rod is getting at. Um, he's all about building and maintaining Christian culture. Maybe, as you said, in some different ways than uh, we might prefer, but still, I think a helpful piece of conversation. It, it also gets, Aaron, to, to something I want to ask you about the newsletter as I read it, it seems very clear that what you're doing is a, a ton of reading and a ton of research. Where do you find like some of the stuff that you bring up in there? It's like, I, I don't even know where Aaron is getting his reading list, <laughs> but how do you go about that? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I just, um, you know, I've always been a voracious reader. And so I do spend a lot of time reading and I often just follow links of citations. Huh. So. For example, in 2013, I heard Tim Keller give a list of the books that had influenced him. And so he listed Christopher Lash, Culture of Narcissism. He listed Habits of the Heart, uh, I think by Robert Bella. He listed um, Triumph of the Therapeutic, is it Philip Reef, who did that? And he listed A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. So I bought all those books and read them. And he may have had more than that, by the way, but I think those are some of the books. So, hey, if Keller says these books influence him, and like he's been tweeting different books that he thinks have influenced, he says these have influenced me. I haven't read any of the new ones he's done lately, right? but I've written them all down. And so I read A Secular Age, and I'm like, wow, that's actually really good. And in A Secular Age, uh, he one of the things that really strikes everybody I've talked to who reads A Secular Age is this interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan by a guy named Ivan Illich, or Illich, I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it, mm -hmm. who is a radical Catholic priest in the 60s, you know, really got going in the 60s and then through the 70s and into the 80s, and then he sort of faded away. And he was a very big name uh, for a while. You know, now people don't know as much about him. But I said, I'm gonna, I want to look into this, this Ivan Illich guy. And I'm like, man, I read sort of like a bunch of Ivan Illich books. I'm like, that guy's got some really, really profound and interesting critiques of modernity. He's a radical, like all right. radicals. You know, he's pretty extreme and weird. So it's like, no, we're not going to go live like you think we should live. But yet within it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of insight into the condition, including his profoundly, uh, I think, impressive interpretation of the uh, parable of Good Samaritan. Another guy that was in there was, um, he mentions a guy named Callum Brown. Huh. Callum Brown is a British academic who wrote a book called The Death of Brit Christian Britain. And Taylor talked about, he quoted about how there, the, uh, in the 1800s, there developed this demonization of men in kind of the church. I'm like, that sounds like stuff I'm interested in. So I bought that book and I'm like, wow, this is like, a treasure trove of research <laughs> that I continue to cite over and over and over again. That's great. And so I get the book from somebody and then I follow citations. I follow citations. I follow citations. 
I see references to books and I just, I just go off from there. And I really think it's important to read books that are old. And by old, I don't mean ancient Greece, okay? Yes, by all means, read the Iliad and the Odyssey. I'm talking about read a book from the 50s or the 60s or the 20s. Yeah. You know, because so much of what we see today is everybody's just talking about books that were read in the last five to 10 years. Almost everything that's been written uh, since the 60s is some form of propaganda. Now, I'm not, I mean, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, so much of what's written today, it has an agenda. Right. Right. And so I like to say, let's not just, let's by all means read the new stuff. Let's go back and read some of the old stuff <laughs> and see what they were saying. And so uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, and a lot of the stuff I'm saying, I mean, it, it is based on a lot of research. So this um, podcast series I'm doing on conservatism, I went and read, I think it's George Nash's History of the Conservative Intellectual Movement. Right. I read George Hawley's right-wing critics of American conservatism. I read some of the paleocon criticisms. And so I went through, I started like, where did, so I'm, I'm looking at this stuff and then I'm like, oh, maybe I should read James Burnham. I'm starting by James Burnham. Oh, we should read the managerial revolution. We should read the Machiavellians. And so I just start following the links through, through and through. And, and then sometimes I just like to read, um, read different things. My wife and I did a, a book club this year where we were reading different novels and that was pretty good. Interesting. So I think you had to get yourself, get yourself out of things. The other thing I do, I'm actually going to recommend this in the, uh, in the next masculinist is I subscribe to the London review of books oh, and okay. the London review of books uh, is probably the best magazine in the world. And they do such incredibly in-depth reviews of books that you basically don't even have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you, you can find out about a lot of things. And then if it's something of course, that you really want to, to dig into and you want to cite, you know, you can go get the book and read it. So I, I think you gotta, you gotta be willing to, kind of spiderweb through things. And I think you need to be willing to get out of just your own intellectual networks. Yeah. You know, I am comparatively uninfluenced by evangelical thinking. I mean, other than Hunter, you know, it's hard to think of a book written by an evangelical that has had any formative influence on how I think about anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yeah. just true. I just, I just don't, you know, I don't, well, there was that book, you know, the scandal of the evangelical mind, Right. Uh, from back in the day. And uh, and so to, to be honest, it's, um, you know, I don't I don't find a lot of uh, I don't find a lot of value in a lot of what's written, sadly. I mean, sometimes I go through it because I feel like, well, what are these guys teaching? Yeah, a lot and of so it then seems I, I, to then be I have to systematically. I'll systematically, you know, like Matt Chandler, I watched all his sermons on marriage. <laughs> right. Watched them all, read his books, you know, because I don't want to just go off half cocked on something. I want to actually do a systematic review before I start critiquing what they're saying. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that's one thing you find is sort of repeated platitudes or there, there's like a group think going on within evangelicalism a lot of times. I found that especially in like the reformed, like the popular that neo-Calvinism uh, movements. One of the things, uh, and we'll close with this, Aaron, I want to ask you is just uh, particularly on the subject of masculinity, if you had to recommend three to five books uh, for people to read, things that have been very formative for you, what uh, what would you point us to? 
You know, that's, that is such a great question uh, because I don't have a good answer to it. And it's one <laughs> of the things that I really, you know, I went through and read a whole bunch of books about masculinity. You know, like I read Harvey Mansfield's book, Manliness, you know who he is. Yeah, I've read a that. Harvard professor. I'm like, you know what? I just wasn't that impressed with that book. No. You know, I mean, I just, I just didn't find it that impressive. Um, so, so I read a ton of these books. And frankly, most of them, I can't really recommend the book, uh, the, the one book I will give you. And I'm a little hesitant to, again, to recommend books because they're, you know, some people want like real practical stuff, brass tack stuff. Some people want deep intellectual stuff. I tend to be more intellectual route. Right. But the book to read, and you can hold off for a little bit because it's about to be reissued this year, is called Man and Woman in Christ by Stephen B. Clark. This is the book that Al Mohler said made him a complementarian. Really? <laughs> that he found this book and read it and was like, oh, man, I'm an idiot. <laughs> and... Um, you know, he, he's got this, he's got this, this, uh, I don't know if it's on video or if it's just in writing where he talks about the story where he's like, you know, I told this some college professor of mine, you know, that I was in, you know, an egalitarian and unfeminine. He's like, and this, and the older man told him, one of these days you're going to be embarrassed. You ever thought that? <laughs> and Stephen B. Clark was a Catholic. And I think that's one reason that the people who produced complementarianism don't seem to have at all drawn on or engaged in his work. Uh, Man and Woman in Christ, I may have come out in 1980. It is far superior to recovering biblical manhood, womanhood. One thing is written by one guy. Right. And uh, so it's going to be uh, reissued by the, the Warhorn uh, media guys this year. And it's a long book. It's a dense book, but it really hits every single angle uh, of kind of, theology and sociology of the sexes. Even if you, um, even if you don't really um, don't agree with everything, I think you'll find it provocative. One other book, again, it's not a treatise on manhood. It's a more intellectual book is Ivan Illich's book, gender. It's I L L I C H. It's how you spell his last name. He wrote a book called gender. This is the book that essentially got him canceled before they, before they called it cancellation, after he wrote this book, he <laughs> was, was no off. longer he was no longer welcome in in the New York Times sort of things. And so, but it's really a uh, uh, again, I think you would find it a very interesting, a very interesting read. So that's two, and it's a much shorter book. It's a much shorter book. Okay, awesome. Well, that sounds fantastic. We'll include uh, links to those in the show notes, Aaron. If people want to follow along, obviously they can go to themasculinist.com. They can follow you on the newsletter and check out your podcast. Anything else you want to point folks to? No, go to themasculinist.com. Definitely sign up for the newsletter. And if you're a podcast person, which you are because you're listening to this, <laughs> subscribe to the podcast. It's, it's on the site. Absolutely. Well, Aaron, I really appreciate it. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I hope that you have been encouraged, edified, and you got some new resources to check out. Of course, I would encourage you to check out Aaron Wren's Masculinist Newsletter, Masculinist Website, 
and his masculinist podcast, all of which has been very edifying and helpful for me. It sparked a lot of interesting conversations with other men as well. As always, a special thank you to our new Patreon members. We had 15 new people join in the month of January. Really appreciate all of your support. And as many people are finding out, we need more support for Christians creating art and creating culture, especially in these hostile times. People are being banned from platforms. So again, I want to encourage you to continue supporting this show and other great Christian works. We need to vote with our dollars in order to see the kingdom of Christ being built up. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.